Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to the Felony Friday podcast. This is the show where we focus on the injustices in the broken criminal justice system. We have a new episode published every Friday, and today we have another great show for you. But before I introduce my guest, I wanted to remind our listeners that the show notes for today's show can be found at lionsofliberty.com slash FF4, lionsofliberty.com slash FF4. My guest for today's show has a wealth of experience in the field of criminal justice, both as a criminal defense trial attorney and as a podcast host, where he's interviewed lawyers, judges, felons, people from all walks of life in the field of criminal justice. His name is Joseph Beliro Jr., and he is, a, as I said, a criminal defense and civil trial attorney. He's been doing that for 28 years, and he's headquartered in Boston, Massachusetts. His practice spans nationwide. He is also the host, as I said, of the Killer Legal Reality Radio podcast. It's a podcast that provides listeners with information about the law and all things legal. The show seeks to broaden uh, listeners' perspectives and provides the tools to better understand the law and the legal process through in-depth interviews with lawyers, experts, convicted felons, law enforcement, and also reviewing famous cases and other amazing stories. Killer Legal Reality Radio aims to provide the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Joseph, welcome to the Felony Friday podcast. Hi, John. It's an honor, an honor truly to be here. I've listened to your show. It is a tremendous show, and I'm just thrilled that you've invited me to be on your podcast. Well, thank you very much for joining me here. I just found out about your show a couple weeks ago and have been going through the episodes. I think you have something nearing like 90 episodes now, and I have a lot, a lot of work ahead of myself to get caught up. Well, it's a full-time job, and it seems to, I don't know, get in the way of my legal practice. What, what do you think, Sean? Should I drop the criminal defense work and just go into podcasting? I don't know. You know, podcasting is a growing field. <laughs> it's, the, uh, it's the next generation of media, so I don't know. It could be something to think about. Right. I wanted to start off with kind of a, a broad question that, that I like to ask a lot of people that we have on the show. I wanted to really get to the heart of um, some sort of your passions. And as we said before, you're a criminal trial defense attorney. I wanted to ask you what led you down that path? What factors attracted you really to pursue a career as an attorney? Well, I come from a family of attorneys. My father, Joseph Bolero Sr., is known as the dean of the defense bar. He's been practicing for over now 64 years. And indeed, he's currently in New York in federal court, my sister, the oldest of my youngest sisters, younger sisters, they are trying a drug conspiracy case. So at his ripe age of 86, he's in New York trying a major conspiracy, a major drug conspiracy. I have cousins who are lawyers. I have brother-in-laws who are lawyers. I have a lot of lawyers in my family, a lot of doctors and a lot of lawyers. I was pretty much brought up on the law. And a lot of what my father did as a criminal defense attorney, he brought home. And well, it wasn't the best thing to happen. It was more inadvertent than anything because he dealt with very high profile criminal cases. 
And as a consequence, I'm 61 years old. Back in 1960, 61, 62, 63, I got a great deal of exposure to those type of high-profile cases. And I took quite a bit of flack as a consequence as a young kid as well. So I was brought up, I guess, with a sense of uh, duty and honor to the Constitution and also with a ingrained attitude about how it is we ought to look at law enforcement and government and how it is and what are the things that we can do to perhaps correct the broken judicial system, as you so eloquently put it, John. So that's a brief history about what kind of motivated or gave me the incentives, kinds of influences that were on my life as a young man that drove me into the law practice. I guess it's as simple as it's in your blood. Yeah, I think it's probably genes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned a couple uh, high-profile cases, and one that I wanted to ask you about is someone your father defended, Bill Baird. Baird is known um, for our listeners as the father of uh, birth control and the abortion movement. He was jailed eight times in five states in the 1960s for lecturing on abortion and birth control. As I mentioned, your father defended him, and you've spoke on your podcast before. I've listened to a couple of your episodes, as I said, as I'm trying to make my way through the, through the many there are. There's so much great content. <laughs> Thank you. You said that, you know, with the case, there were some things, some harassment that came against your family. I just was wondering if you'll talk about that a little bit and how that affected you and maybe how that affected sort of just your view of uh, maybe society's view towards the uh, the legal process. Oh, I'm happy to, John. You know, Bill Baird is a remarkable, remarkable man. He is a man who really had no outside influences on him that drove him to become an activist on behalf of women's rights, the poor, and gays. He just kind of took it on, and it took a life of its own. He dedicated everything uh, to it, and he suffered greatly as a consequence. His clinic in New York was burned down. You know, he was harassed. Uh, he was struck. He was hit. He was jailed. He was jailed in one of the worst jails in the United States, the Child Street Jail, the oldest jail in the United States. It doesn't exist anymore. But, you know, as a young attorney, me going into that jail, it was medieval. It was just like something out of a movie about Alcatraz. And he was actually jailed there. And he, you know, tried to help a young man who was gay who had been arrested for performing fellatio on another man, obviously, and ultimately was given 15 years sentence for that felony and was killed in jail. Uh, so Bill Baird has seen it all. He went through it all. Now, this was during a time when the issue of abortion was a magnet. It was just a magnet for extremism and activists who carried the mantle of extreme religious belief just to the excess. And I can remember that while my father was advocating and representing Bill Baird on these various cases, I had to be escorted to school and from school. And I can remember on those days when I was not escorted, I was beat up. I was routinely beat up by other students, older students, whose family had imposed their opinions against Bill Baird and against my family for advocating on his behalf onto those children. And they felt like I was fair game because I had been 
seen by their parents as a member of a family that was a bad family. So this brought a great deal of outrage into my life. And I still feel that kind of a twinge with the, you know, anti-abortion, pro-choice controversy that exists today. And that's one of the things that Bill Beard was really, really offended with. And he still is offended by it. And that is that somebody should have the right and the power to tell another person what they can or cannot do with their own body. Now, I understand all ramifications of that. You know, there's an innocent life. When does life begin? I mean, thousands of questions. But when it comes right down to it, we're dealing with a level of activism and extremism that has gotten just so extreme that it becomes violent. And we have clinic shootings, clinic murders, and we have all kinds of craziness instead of civil discussion over the issues and opinions that you have against the issues and opinions that I have. And that's one of the things Bill Beard just, I think it just drove him nuts. And he saw so much horror and suffering in hospitals about, you know, from women who last recourse was a coat hanger or sterno or, or some crazy stuff. They drink Drano to try and abort. Wow. It's just horror stories. And this is a man that literally, literally had no legal education. He was just a salesperson for a pharmaceutical company. He had no reason to pick up the mantle other than his own personal drive to try and correct the injustices that he saw. I look at Bill Baird, truthfully, as a mentor. When I have to say to myself, do I really want to carry this ball this far? I always put myself in check with Bill Baird. And I say to myself, what would Bill have done? And inevitably, I go on the right course as a consequence. So that's kind of things that impacted my life. And of course, there are hundreds of other cases that, you know, my father represented high profile clients that I was exposed to over the years. You learn how to, I guess, get a tough skin and it kind of carves you out for the criminal defense field, I suppose, after a while. <laughs> I'll bet. And, uh, the case with Bill Baird, uh, the one aspect I was reading about, when the one time he was arrested, I should say one of the several times, is he was actually just arrested for, he was passing out contraceptives and pamphlets. Correct. And in my view, I mean, that's that's your First Amendment right. You know, you're not forcing anyone to do anything. You're just, you're passing out uh, educational material and things like that. Well, it's acceptable today to a certain extent. But remember when he was doing it, what he was setting up, he was setting up a protest because at the time... Contraceptives were legal only for married women, not for single women. It was illegal to distribute contraceptives and or contraceptive advice to single women. And the, the young women at Boston University had invited Bill to Boston to do just that. They wanted somebody to stand up and do this so they could get arrested so it would be brought into the limelight and it would go up to the Supreme Court of the United States, which eventually his cases did. He has the record as the highest number of times going to the Supreme Court of the United States by a layperson. I think it's the Guinness World Book of Records for getting up there so many times. But that was, you know, if you think of it today, you know, we look back and we say, how crazy was that? How crazy was that? You could only distribute contraceptives legally to married women, not to single women. Today's 
you know, culture, our mindset today, you know, I think anybody would say, well, that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. And for someone like me that is a little bit younger and wasn't alive during that time period, it's a good reminder to look back at things like this and realize that we have made a lot of progress righting the wrongs in the criminal justice system. There's a long way to go, but that gives some hope for me, at least. That's my hope. It is. And that's why I continue to fight. Let's turn the page just a little bit here. And I wanted to ask you about your own legal career as a criminal trial defense attorney. And I was wondering if you could share, you don't have to get into specifics if you're not able to, but if you could share if there's any specific cases that come to mind as the the result, the ruling is being unjust. Oh, certainly, John. I mean, I think one of the more famous cases nationwide was the Fells Acre Daycare case where three individuals who ran a daycare in Malden, Mass, were indicted on multiple felonies regarding the sexual assault of the children in their care. Now, this was following right along the time the Martin case blew up in California. So there was a tenor at that time, and I, I was in law school at the time, but I was working in the office. And uh, this case went on for uh, 10 or 15 years. My office, my father, my uh, sister, myself, was intimately involved in the trials of Tookie and of Cheryl and Violet, the mother and the daughter. This particular case was actually picked up by the Wall Street Journal, and there were quite a few articles that were written damning the judicial system for their practices and coercing the children into making the statements that they did make. The whole manner of questioning victims of sexual assault changed radically as a consequence of that case. There were no longer interrogations of children. They no longer used trickery and deceit like, you know, little Mary, uh, we know these things happen. Your friend Susie told us they happened to her and she saw them happen to you. So they must have happened to you, didn't they? And of course, you know, <laughs> Mary's, oh yeah, of course, you know, it did happen to me. Those whole manners of interrogation of children and other victims of sexual assault have altered radically as a consequence of the Felsbaker daycare case. Now, unfortunately, all three were convicted. All three were incarcerated. Violet passed away. Cheryl was released. And Tookie finished his sentence and was released. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with these people, you know, probably eight or 10 years. And I got to know them very, very well. And I can tell you, without a doubt in my mind, I will go to my grave believing that this was a terrible, terrible prosecution and just a horrible conviction and a terrible injustice that was visited not only on these three, but on these children as well, who are growing up and have grown up believing they were sexually assaulted. It's just remarkable what can happen. And, you know, having intimate knowledge about the tactics and the spin and the techniques that were used, it just, you know, sometimes it, it becomes such a burden that I have to look to Bill Beard, <laughs> just to say, he persevered, I'm going to persevere, because uh, it's just, uh, and there are so many of those. You're exposed on a daily basis as a criminal defense attorney to the spin that the state and the federal government can put on a set of facts that are innocent, but they can be turned and changed and altered and argued in a way that makes them inculpatory, that makes those facts sound like you're the guilty party. And you see that daily. 
daily off in every court that I go to pretty much with every client, whether or not they're guilty. You know, there are facts that are uh, spun and turned and changed that are non-existent or innocent uh, just to help with the prosecution, if not to outright convict when there's a severe, severe case of innocence. Seen it over and over again in serious, serious cases, murders and rapes and gang fights and, you know, street battles, you know, all these kinds of things. You know, when you have, you know, these street battles between gangs, the attitude is just arrest everybody. You know, somebody dies, charge them all with murder. You know, we'll figure out later who's going to go down for life because they were part of the conspiracy and who's going to go down for life because he pulled a knife out and stabbed somebody in the heart. It's just crazy stuff. But, you know, it is what it is. And that's what you fight against. Yeah, I do wonder if most people in society sort of gloss over that and just blindly trust. I know myself, and maybe I'm different because my father is an attorney, so I've been exposed to a lot of the things that you're talking about. I mean, I can remember a case that he had when I was much younger, so don't remember all the details, but a case where two teachers had a, a son and a daughter, and the daughter was, I don't know, maybe middle school or I think high school age, maybe. And one of her high school teachers was convincing her that she was being sexually abused at home. And this ended up turned into a, a whole case of the parents got arrested, drug out of school, and it went to trial and they ended up being proven not guilty. But I think a lot of it had to do with the, I think the brother testified or something saying that, you know, this is just crazy. None of this happened. Yeah. She was just making it up. But I think a lot of people in society maybe aren't exposed to things like that. That's why you have your show. And that's why I'm trying to do this show as well, to, to try to educate people and just, uh, you know, just let people know that it's not that you have to not trust anyone, but you got to be a little skeptical, I think. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I know a lot of very, very good police officers. I know a lot of very good police detectives. And I know a lot of good prosecutors. In fact, my cousin is a prosecutor, believe it or not. So it's not carte blanche. It doesn't go straight down the board, but there are serious pressures against a prosecutor who wants to be honest and truthful uh, to get that conviction. And they're directed by their supervisors and they're directed by their training. So oftentimes, you know, I'll run into a prosecutor that I know on a personal basis. I know to be an honest, hardworking and upright prosecutor and Invariably, they come to me on the side and say, Joe, I'm not going to come out of left field with this. I've been instructed to uh, make this proposition to the judge today. I'll make my pitch, but I'll do no more than make my pitch. And I'll say, well, I appreciate the heads up. And, you know, I'll make my pitch in opposition. You know, it's difficult for them. <laughs> you know? Sometimes, sometimes you, you're fighting against the powers that be when you are the power to be. It's uh, it can be very. I'm sure it's very very complicated. A lot more complicated from looking on the outside as I would perceive it to be. I'm sure there's a, a lot of complications and emotions that, that go into things like that for a prosecutor, especially. Oh sure, sure. And your show does a great deal. I mean, you should be very proud of your show, John, because you're right. A lot of people don't see this. It's not in their face until they get arrested. I've represented a lot of people who have been arrested for the first time, and they're just flabbergasted. They can't understand what is going on. They don't understand what is happening to them. They don't understand why these police and these prosecutors are saying those things about them. It just, until you're faced with it, you don't realize it exists. 
and you go blindly along trusting that the state and the government will do the right thing for you until you're faced with it. So, John, I think your show does a great deal to bring to light to the listeners, you know, those things that we need to do to fight injustice. Thank you very much, Joe. Try to do my little part here. I want to uh, talk about your podcast a little bit. And, you know, if the people who aren't familiar with the podcast, you should definitely check it out. Joe has, it's amazing the guests that he has on there. Uh, our listeners might be familiar with Harvey Silvergate, world-renowned attorney, author of the book Three Felonies a Day, which I just bought and just started reading. I'm excited to read that. We talked about Bill Baird a little earlier. There's a six-part series there that is on the podcast. There's also interviews, which I found this pretty fascinating, with heroin addicts, convicted murderers, pedophiles, yeah. as well as you know uh, judges and uh, and lawyers too. And I thought it was very interesting that you're bringing in. It seems to be a pretty equal divide of guests from all sides of the criminal justice system. So maybe if you could just speak a little bit about why you're choosing to pretty much sample everything, because you have a, you know a person convicted of murder that you're bringing on to, to talk about their experience and lawyers as well and judges as well. So what's your thought process on that format? I have been exposed in now 29 years, not only to defendants who just can't seem to get out of their own way. In fact, I call them, some of my clients annuities because they seem to get in <laughs> trouble so often I can always count on another fee from them. But I've also been confronted with families who have asked me, what's going on? What's happening? Why is this happening? And there seems to be a theme, and I've identified that theme in the past 29 years, that there is a lack or an inability to operate on a course that's productive, uh, that's rational, that's logical, and that defines you as a good person in society as opposed to an antisocial person. And that's the consequence. The core, the reason, the source for that is a lack of understanding of what is the course that I should be taking. What are the decisions that I should be taking? What is the logic that's behind the thinking process of those persons who have done well, or perhaps those persons who have not done well, but yet have something still to offer? You know, I really believe that, you know, demonstration is the greatest uh, learning experience, understanding and seeing what other people have either accomplished or what has befallen them in life and where they are today is the best example that can be possibly given for those who are struggling with the course of their lives. So, you know, in order to present that correctly, John, I think you have to show, you know, this is F. Lee Bailey. This is the gentleman that represented O.J. Simpson. This is the gentleman that represented Sam Shepard, who was the man that they fashioned the Fugitive series and movie uh, you know, about. This is the man that represented high-profile defendants all over the world. This is the course of his life. These are the decisions he made as a young man. This is why he ended up where he is. But on the other side of the coin, you also have to show, yes, Derek Blacken, convicted murderer, absolutely no criminal record before the night he stabbed Frank Sullivan to death 30 times with a roofing knife. Wow. Now, where is he? Well, it's 20 years later. He's sitting in jail. He's got a life sentence. He's never going to get out. He knows he's never going to get out. So what is he doing in his life? 
he makes the best of it. Now he's starting to make good decisions. He's contributing to the social climate of the prison. He's a coach in the softball team. He's a mentor to other inmates that come in on long sentences. He's in the murder club. So the murder club is really the tier where all first-degree murderers are kept in any state prison. He advocates on behalf of inmates, and he also advocates on behalf of victims. He's a great advocate of, you know, I suppose you'd call it the 12-step process for first-degree murderers, you know, recognizing what you've done, accepting that that's who you were, you know, in the 12-step process they use to try and understand who they were then. You know, John, it's amazing. You know, I contacted by letter because that's the only way you can do it with convicted felons. I contacted a gentleman who is now 72 years old. My father represented him when he was 21. And he and three other men abducted this young man, was from a wealthy family. He was the football quarterback, well-loved, and they held him for ransom. And in the process, he died. They suffocated him accidentally, but, you know, nevertheless, he died. And this gentleman went away for life. And, you know, I had an opportunity to speak with him about six years ago. I represented him on a collateral matter regarding his incarceration. And, you know, he just said to me, you know, Joe, I understand why everybody hates me and it's justified, but I don't know that person I was 40 years ago. I know it was me. Mm -hmm. I accepted it was me. I know I did what I did, but if he walked in front of me today, I wouldn't recognize him. You know, there's a lesson to be learned from that. Interviewing that man so he can tell his story and reveal his attitudes and his ideals that he has today may, may help another young man that's going down that road. Now, would that other young man necessarily listen to my podcast? Perhaps not, but maybe his father, maybe his mother, maybe his uncle, maybe his aunt, maybe somebody that knows him will be listening to that podcast and say, hey, you should listen to this podcast. This guy is going to open your eyes up to the course that you're taking in your life and why you need to change it. So it really is all about attitudes and ideals, whether it be from successful people or whether it be from people who have done horrible, horrible things in their life, but are on a different path today. It's a way, hopefully, of sending a message that there are ways for you to grab hold and seize the day. And that's what this is all about. And I think we're on cue here, John, because I think your show is following that path. And that's which is why yeah. I like it so much, to be honest. It's amazing. You keep bringing up examples that I have, I have a relatable experience to. I went to a crazy, but similar story to the one you just told. Some kids that I played high school football with. Um, they went to college and got involved with a bad crowd uh, dealing drugs. And, um, you know, the one kid I used to, ump my, I call him a kid, he's a grown man now, used to up my baseball games growing up. And my dad and I would give him a ride to the field. One of the, the nicest kids you'll meet. Got involved with a bad crowd. They thought that uh, another guy stole money from them. So they kidnapped him. And when he was kidnapped and they were trying to extract information from him, they killed him. So now all, all three of them are, are in prison for life. That's um, and it's amazing how quickly something like that can happen. And I think you nailed it there. Your podcast, Killer Legal Reality Radio, um, it's the only podcast I know of that is really bringing on you know, violent criminals who have made mistakes and talking about the lessons they've learned from them. And I think that's really important. And 
hopefully, I think it's definitely, there's definitely a chance that it's uh, going to wake someone up and maybe set them down the right path. I would hope so. I would hope so. Then it'll be all worth it, especially with the opiate crisis that we have right now. You know, I've had so many heroin addicts on and that story needs to be told so people understand it. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's very sad, and that's a that's a complicated issue on itself as well. I wanted to ask you one more question sure. before we say goodbye here. So, something that I talk a lot about and I've written about a lot in the past is uh, Second Amendment rights for felons. And with federal law, essentially, if you get convicted of a felony, be it nonviolent, victimless, or or a violent crime, um, no matter what, basically all the same. Some states have a little bit different uh, rules on that. But once you're released, uh, you don't have Second Amendment rights. Um, if you could just maybe uh, speak to, first off, in the state of Massachusetts, what's the law there when a felon is released? It's the same as it is nationwide. What you're talking about, John, from my perspective, is issues of reentry. Reentry into society. You know, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of social movement right now within uh, law enforcement uh, administrations, such as sheriff's offices. I had Sheriff Frank Cousins on, and he spoke to these kind of reentry issues. And the issue then becomes, you know, if we're going to bring people back into the community and into society, how far should we go with them? Um, you know, and I think the, the great opinion of most criminal defense attorneys is essentially that if you're going to rehabilitate and if you're going to provide reentry programs uh, for felons, then you have to give them their rights back because you make them a second-class citizen if you don't. It's not an issue of whether or not they want to exercise the rights. It's possessing the right. It's understanding that you're a whole human being, that you're a whole member of society. Again, you know, they, they carry a horrible taint with them. And the taint just invades every aspect of their life. It invades their social interaction. It invades their economic well-being. They can't get jobs, or if they do get jobs, they, you know, they're paid less than minimum wage because they get a kickback to the employer because he knows they're never going to get a job. You just second-class them. And in doing that, you put on them a terrible, terrible burden, and you're forgetting that they took the wrong path in the first place. They exercised bad judgment in the first place. So you you can't have that kind of granite stone on their back as they try to change their life, change their ideals, change their attitudes, and become contributing members of society. You've got to give them what everybody else has, their rights, their constitutional rights. Mm -hmm. You can't just take them away and say, Go back into society. You're just like anybody else. Yeah. You see where I'm coming from, Joe? It's essentially releasing them back, but not giving people their freedom. It's saying that you're released, but you're not equal to everyone else around you. Your life is not worth the same as everyone else's life. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's horrible. I think it's terrible. But I think there's a move toward it. There's a move, I think, nationwide towards rehabilitation and reentry programs. And, you know, that's a political uh, consequence. You know, the jails are too full. They're too expensive. They're too dangerous. There's too many drugs in them. There's too much alcohol in them. And the alcohol is terrible. I mean, it's not really alcohol. It's Drano and stuff. But, you know, and you're losing more people in jail daily than you you lose, you know, in an airplane crashes in a year. So, you know, there's a move towards getting them out of that kind of environment into, you know, what what are called halfway houses, a community uh, centers in a state and local level there. 
transition programs like Women in Transition and those kinds of things, and getting them into a less restrictive environment, a less violent environment, an environment where counseling and therapy and training, you know, job training, obviously, you know, it's very, very important. Right. So, you know, I think there's going to be a move towards, you know, reinstituting, you know, the rights uh, of felons once they're released, because I, nobody wants the system that we have now, even the jailers don't want it. It's too dangerous, it's too crowded. It's just too much. It's too much. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Joe, thank you for coming on the show. I want to give you an opportunity to tell all the listeners of the Felony Friday podcast where they can find the Killer Legal Reality Radio show. You can find Joe Bolero Jr.'s Killer Legal Reality Radio on iTunes. <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. It's also on Stitcher. It's on Google Play. It is on TuneIn. You know, basically, I've kind of plastered the world with killer legal reality radio. But iTunes is a great source for it. You can get that right on your smartphone. Just hit podcast, a little purple button you got there, and type in the search bar, killer legal reality radio. It'll pop up and it'll be there forever. You'll never get rid of it. It's evergreen. So that's where you can find it. And, uh, you know, I am going to let everybody know about your show, John. Is the first chance I get my next interview and uh, let people know how much fun I've had with you as being a guest on and how much of an honor it is to be on your show, John. It was an honor having you on the show, Joe. And uh, I really want to thank you for doing what you're doing. You're doing a fantastic job. You're doing work that I don't think that I haven't seen that no one else there is doing. So keep up the good work, Joe. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure the listeners do as well. We will persevere, John. I just want to remind everyone, we talked about a lot of stuff in the show today, so please check out the show notes, lionsofliberty.com slash FF4. It's real simple, just two letters, FF and a number, four. Check that out for all the links. Please remember to follow the Lions of Liberty on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, you can join our private Facebook forum simply by searching Lions of Liberty on Facebook and the group will pop right up, and we will get you added almost immediately unless it's in the middle of the night. Please subscribe to the Lines of Liberty podcast, and remember that the Felony Friday podcast is a subset of one of many shows. So we do three shows a week here at the Lines of Liberty podcast. Felony Friday is every Friday, and we have a show every Monday and Wednesday, usually hosted by our host, Mark Clare, who has guests on from all over the libertarian movement, and we have our GOP and Democratic debate reaction shows and fan favorite libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor. So be sure to subscribe to the Lions of Liberty podcast to get all of that great content. Subscribe on iTunes or if Apple's not your thing, if you don't like Apple, subscribe through Stitcher as well. And please email the show if you have ideas or if you're someone who wants to come on the show, send an email to felonyfriday at lionsofliberty.com. I promise I will reply to you. It might take me a little bit of time, but I will definitely reply. And you can check out the archive, all the old shows and um, all of the old articles I've written, Felony Friday articles. Before Felony Friday was a podcast, it was a column. You can check that out at alliansofliberty.com slash Felony Friday. So that's all I have for today. I wanted to thank Joseph Valero Jr. once again for coming on the show. Please check out his podcast, Killer Legal Reality Radio. It's awesome. It's a, a show that I'm definitely adding to my mix. I got to make a little more time in my day to listen to another podcast. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. <laughs>